Mobility. It's how you get from point A to point B. But today, as the industry experiences unprecedented growth and innovation, there are so many new, exciting, and eco-friendly ways to get to a destination by ground, by air, and by sea. As Park My Fleet continues to build expansive mobility hubs across the U.S., we are eager to talk to and learn from the leaders and innovators in the space who are reimagining mobility. Join us for our podcast, Driving Mobility, as we talk with some of the biggest thinkers and disruptors today. I'm Michelle Pirog, Chief Strategy Officer of Park My Fleet and today's host. Join me as I sit down with John Pusamato, founder and CEO of Drive It Away, a company that's devised a practical and affordable way for all drivers to rent to own both ICE and electric vehicles. Welcome, John. We're so excited to have you here with us. To kick off, can you tell us what exactly is Drive It Away? As an entrepreneur, it's that you want to find big problems. Because if you can find solution to big problems, right, there's lots of opportunity for everyone. So this was a series of big problems that we're attempting to solve. It is an easy, transparent, app-based way to drive a newer used vehicle without making a financial commitment, a purchase or a lease, but uh, paying a, a subscription fee where the money goes towards the vehicle in a down payment if you choose to buy. You know, if you think about it, if someone comes into the store and doesn't have good credit, they require substantial down payment for a newer used car. And there really is no wiggle room. You have 800 credit score, you can drive away not putting anything down. But the worse your credit, the more money you need. And so what happens to that customer? And this is an area of the business that really hasn't changed in 30 years. They either go into a perpetual rental or they go that buy here, pay here route. But typically that customer gets an older unit, higher priced older unit. And in a, in a lot of cases, it's just sad, but it's true that the vehicle lasts less time than the note that the customer is obligated to, meaning it breaks down. And if it does, then, then the same cycle repeats itself. There really isn't an opportunity for that customer to what I would say rehabilitate to a better credit. So we looked at that and said, why not put the customer in the vehicle of choice and let them drive it in a rental contract or a subscription, but portion some money of what they pay towards the fixed purchase price if they choose to buy it. So I'll give you an example. I come in, my credit's a little spotty. I see the vehicle of choice that I want on the used car lot. I need $4,000. I've got a thousand down. <laughs> you know, no choice with the dealer. They, they, they can't get them bought. They need 4000 Why not put that same car out immediately and spread that $3,000 upfront payment over a period of months with payments that are appropriate for the buyer? And now everyone's happy. And that dealer expands their customer base with a very, very loyal customer. It is a fact of life that the better the credit, the less loyal the customer, right? They'll go down the street for $5, you know, while the car's in this status. We offer one-on-one credit counseling, credit remediation with a third-party company called Credit Evolve. But what we want is kind of a win-win for everybody. It's a win for the dealer. It's a win for the consumer. And we feel that this option was more available, that it would be the most desirable uh, option in a lot of cases for that credit challenge consumer. I love the idea of helping people to get into a vehicle and helping them do it with, with dignity. So great work there. In the last 50 years, we have developed a society that you know, that needs personal transportation, right? And while we love to encourage most people to drive less, 
there are folks that you want to encourage to drive more. In the last 50 years, the poverty level has gone down from 22% to 12%, unless you're a carless household, in which case it went up. In addition to the base problem, which is, hey, how can we basically get folks in better cars with a transparent platform that benefits everyone? It's how can we put people to work, particularly now when the problem isn't, you know, getting a job, it's getting to the job. You got to wonder if, will cars become a perk? Will they offer that in order to get people to work? It's exactly the direction that I think things might be going. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal and they gave a whole list of Fortune 1000 companies that were literally developing and buying track housing for employees. And it wasn't because they wanted to be in the housing business. It was because this was a way to make housing affordable for, you know, the desired employees that they sorely need and have difficulty getting. So if companies are going to the point of actually developing and buying and building houses, right, I, I think a car on a program like this is a slam dunk. Can you tell us a little bit about your early years? You know, where did you go to school? What did you study? I went to uh, Wharton undergrad where in my second year, I was introduced to the very first uh, entrepreneurial center in any college as a discipline in the United States. It broke off from the management department. And that sort of influenced me forever. I really liked the, the courses. They, they brought in real entrepreneurs to talk to folks, not just kind of theoretical. And then I went off to the law school at Penn, got a law degree, passed the bar, and basically never practiced law. I was introduced to the car business. There was a very tiny Chrysler Plymouth store in the family. And the decision was, okay, either somebody buys it or we just close it down. And when I say tiny, I mean, really, really tiny. Had an annual planning potential from the manufacturer of 160 cars a year, right? And it wasn't doing anywhere near that. <laughs> I mean, the place had been built in the 40s, I believe, had a two-car showroom. And of course, I said, gee, this is a fantastic opportunity. And I, I bought it for not a whole lot of money. And I remember specifically that year, it was in the wintertime, and, and, and the market was going crazy. Right? So where I was, was actually prospering. And I was in the showroom, and the snow kept falling and falling and falling and falling. And all of a sudden, the two-car showroom roof caved in right, from the snow. And, and I said to myself, well, this is sort of lucky. Most people don't know when their career is completely over. I, I just experienced it firsthand. And this is 100% true. I don't know how I got a copy of Automotive Fleet. It was just like sent to me. I learned about Fleet and learned that if I had a prayer, it was going to be in, in, in small and, and medium-sized and maybe even larger corporate fleet because I could get away with delivering the cars and they'd never see where they came from. <laughs> make a long story short, within three years, we were the third largest fleet dealer in the country for Chrysler Plymouth. I'm dating myself, it was a long time ago. And the fifth largest dealer in general selling 5,600 cars out of this place that was no more than three acres. We had crews on the road delivering cars, you know, every day. And then people parking in the drugstore parking lot across the street, it was, it was wild. But, but that got me in the business and I've been hooked ever since. Can I just say, wow, I love a great <laughs> pivot story. The thing is, you don't know it's a pivot at the time, right? You think it's a complete catastrophe, right? And, and in retrospect, it looks really good. Can I ask you exactly what it is that turned your focus really entirely to the enabling entry of EVs? We were growing brake guns and then the car shortage hit, right? 
And, you know, our program only really works for a dealer in used cars when cars depreciate, which, you know, for the last hundred years or so is a pretty good bet, <laughs> but the last year has not been the case. So, I mean, the number of cars we had on the platform from dealers was just dwindling. Remember, we're, we're a self-liquidating portfolio, right? Over 75% of the people that come into our program to date have bought their car. So it's not like we have a standing fleet that, that sits. So we took a step back. Let's figure out what we do and let's figure out where the real growth areas of the future are. Then we looked at the whole EV market and there was another big problem to solve. So there was growth in EV sales last year. Pretty good growth in the United States. 98% were to premium luxury or luxury buyers, right? So virtually all of it went to luxury. Luxury is like 20% of the whole market, right? And 98% of those sales were to people who owned at least two other vehicles. So what does that tell you? That no manufacturer has been successful to date selling entry-level EVs. And there's an inherent hesitation. You know, you own two other cars and they're gas engines, buying an EV really isn't a risk, right? If this is your only car, now there's a suitability question. Now, EVs are 20% higher in price, right, on average. So your entry-level person has no motivation. Why should I do this? Well, if you can take that and spread out those payments, which is what Drive It Away does, all of a sudden now the cost savings, particularly now in fuel, sort of help pay for, for that. You get the benefit of driving and the saving before you actually make a commitment to buy. What if it isn't suitable for me? Under normal circumstances with a lease or a sale contract, right, you're stuck. With us, it's an open-ended contract. We give the, the driver the right, but not the obligation to buy. All the while they're building uh, equity you know, towards the vehicle. So. Well, they don't get any money back if they turn it back in a month. There's no, there's no downside. You're not locked in a contract. You don't have to resell it. We really have to work together in tandem as businesses, government, and just people to say, if we want there to be some transition to EV, there has to be some support. There has to be a little time. And you have to get people in cars. They have to yeah. learn how to feel comfortable. So I, I love that with your concept, they're able to try it out for a year or whatever the subscription period might be. No OEM is going to get anywhere near the projections that they put over the next five years with EV sales if they don't break into the mainstream market and the entry-level market. But there's going to be a lot of lower-priced product in the future, right? You have a lot of manufacturers coming in at $25,000, $30,000. GM itself is going to produce an Equinox next year for $30,000, all EV, which is a dynamite now because uh, of the car shortage. What we can do is learn this market very, very well. Because when things start to reverse themselves and the focus is on EVs, we think that there'll be a major emphasis on grabbing the mainstream market, and we have the perfect program to do that in the sense that it spreads out the upfront cost, and it's, a, it's an open-ended contract. Very, very easy. You jump on the app, you know, basically pick your vehicle, and everything's done inside the app. Again, it's turnkey. App literally, when someone shows up at the dealership or picks up the car, but they're just handed the keys because everything else is, is done. You're literally bringing what was perceived as the, a luxury EV to the subprime market. Great pivot. And there are things happening now that tell us that and larger companies want to get moving in the EV space. For instance, Bank of America has a $4,000 internal kind of cash rebate for anybody that buys an EV, right? So... Wow, if, even from the finance side, that's yeah. super interesting. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a lot that tells us that if we have the proper mechanism, there are a lot more people that will go you know, for EVs. They just need the combination uh, kind of financial instrument and digital platform 
to make it all work. Is your platform already available nationwide? Is it in specific areas? What's your plan for rollout? The base platform for dealers is available nationwide, has been. We've been in 15 states. Our EV rollout is happening as we speak. We're in the Philadelphia region. We're in the Hartford, Connecticut region. We're in the Detroit region. We'll soon be in the the Richmond, Charlottesville, Virginia region. We should roll out in Ontario, Canada uh, within 60 days. Lots of advantages to our program, particularly with the used vehicles. Like who wouldn't want to drive it for a couple months first, just to make sure everything worked. With EVs, even more so. While it's perfectly suited to enable a credit-challenged person to drive an EV, it might be the only way they're available. There's folks on the other end of the spectrum too, that say like, look, I want to try out a Polestar. And and interestingly enough, we have Polestars on the program and that taught us that there are folks that you know, higher income demographic, maybe have no credit challenges whatsoever, but hey, this is a new make. It's sort of a new manufacturer. I, I, I'll, I'm going to drive this for, you know, three or four months first and then then really make a decision. I think that EVs lend themselves to subscriptions for that reason, right? That it's, hey, this is new. This is different. Maybe I just don't want to make the commitment immediately, but I do want to start driving. I couldn't agree more. Park My Fleet sponsored Charge Across America last year. And so we had five teams that drove electric vehicles, all non-Teslas, because we didn't want it to be unfair. You know, the Tesla network is super robust. And we had them compete against each other strategically on how to get from New York to California in an EV. And, you know, we had some experts and then we had some people who had never gotten into an EV before. And we really wanted to see what was the what was the point at which the driver got comfortable enough with that EV to to feel like they can make it across the country because it's technology. It's like when you get a new iPhone and you want to throw it out the window after you've, you know, tried to do something, you can't figure it out. It's frustrating. And what, you know, one of the learnings that we definitely was one of our biggest takeaways was that it takes a little time. People that were not confident at all in sitting in an EV after three or four days, start getting a little bit more confident. And then by day 10, profess that they wanted to go back to their city and start an EV club. Absolutely. There's nothing like trying it. And, you know, I don't think a test drive or a weekend right, really does it. it. It does take a little bit of time. Do you own an EV? No, I've driven our subscriptions for a long time. <laughs> what is the longest trip you've ever taken in an EV? Because people do have range anxiety. Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I've gone maybe a four or five hour trip, which is pretty good. I mean, I would love to go cross country. I haven't had the need to, but I would love to try that. I mean, so far I haven't had an issue. There have been charging stations anywhere I need them to be. Now, that being said, some feedback we've gotten from customers is that, hey, if you go outside a certain range, you'll find Tesla chargers, but you're not going to find mainstream chargers. There are definitely charging deserts out there. I can attest to that. I was in Greenville, South Carolina at my niece's graduation from Clemson, and my son went to rent a car, and they just gave him an EV. They didn't tell him. They didn't (laughs) ask him if that's what he wanted. They just gave it to him. Well, we spent a Saturday trying to find a place that we could charge it. We weren't staying in a hotel. We were staying in in an Airbnb. You know, if we were staying in a hotel, we could have found a charging station and done it overnight. But there were really only slow charges around. So it was so frustrating. And the infrastructure hasn't gotten there yet. What do you think it's going to take to get the infrastructure to improve enough that scenarios like mine 
don't repeat themselves. Well, it does seem like there's a major focus on that and a lot of big money trying to solve that problem. So I'm not sure what it'll take but I, or how long it will take, but I think there's a major focus. I have to say, too, that at CES this year in January, in mm-hmm. the automotive section, it seemed like, like every third booth was a charging, you know, a high-speed charging vendor, right? There's a lot of vendors. There's money chasing it. Tesla seems to have solved most of that issue. There's there's rumor he's going to open up the, or Musk going to open up those charging stations, which will help. So that that's a big picture question I can't answer, but I have to believe, given all of the money and attention, that it will be it will be solved. Other than the infrastructure, what do you think will be other driving factors to accelerate the adoption of EVs? Look, we've got to make them cheaper. <laughs> It's just got to be more affordable for folks. It's wonderful to to sell $150,000 Hummers and $60,000 Teslas, but that's not the mainstream, right? Number one is price. Number two is self-serving. It's a business we're in, but the mechanism that's used to acquire one, I think it has to be sort of some, you know, kind of subscription open-ended agreement. And then just more pure usage. In California, it's tough not to find a Tesla, right? And I think a lot of it is just you reach critical mass and then people realize that it's viable, acceptable. They know somebody that's driving an EV. They've been in an EV. It will definitely be more mainstream. Now, that being said, if you look at the aggressive targets of the manufacturers, by 2030, half of the sales will be EVs. Now, what are we at? Four or five percent right now? And that's not that far away. So, you know, I think there will be a lot of programs like ours or similar that will make it advantageous for mass consumers to jump into EVs. I, I think that it, it will take a coalition. I don't think there's any one sector that can move it alone. And, and typically the OEMs have complete control over what they do with vehicles. But in this case, for this adoption, it, it, it's not as simple as a, you know, a gas unit that's been around for a hundred years. So it takes the, the technology platform. It takes a finance group, right? That's going to understand new ways uh, to make EVs affordable, right? It takes folks like you on the fleet side. It takes a whole bunch of sectors, right? And if we were talking about one or 2% growth a year, right, then maybe it could go on the way it's going on. But I, I, I we're talking about, you know, doubling and tripling over a very short amount of time. Take the state of New Jersey as an example. They're announcing, hey, we doubled EV penetration last year from 2% to 4%, which is, which sounds really good, right? And sounds like you'll get there by 2030 until you realize again, they were 99% Teslas, right? And that's the luxury segment. And that's a very small, well, it's 20% of the entire, uh, you know, buying sector. For automobiles right so while it looks really good on paper you really haven't dipped into those sectors that that will make that growth it's a hackneyed phrase but i think this is a team effort from a lot of players to get to where we want to be how do we think that the grid's going to be able to handle all the charging especially you coming from the fleet world we're all kind of asking that question see that's a great question too i've never seen an issue that seems to be cut and dried, but has experts on both sides claiming completely opposite things. One group saying, hey, it's doable, it's adaptable, it will need infrastructure investment, but it's nothing that can't be done within the time frame it needs to be done. 
and then a whole other group saying, no, we're going to collapse it. It's never going to happen, right? And I'm fascinated because there's smart people on both sides, but they can't both be right. Maybe it depends on the geography, and some areas will transition really well, and some areas won't. There's a lot of big things coming up. The F-150 Lightning, I think, is the only EV that's bio-directional right now. So you can charge or you can power something from it. And so the scenario that they've, they've, they've shown is that if I had a, a house equipped with solar panels, right, I could charge my vehicle during the day, right, run my house, and then at night use the vehicle to power my house, right, when the sun is in the... And, and be, you know, pretty much totally off the grid... It's so interesting. Yeah, I would imagine um, on your side of it, it's it's pretty great because you could you could arrange all that, right? You could have the solar panels and everything. It would be very efficient. That's the plan. What does your day-to-day -day look like? This is a startup. So what I would like to tell you is I do a lot of only highbrow strategic planning and, and, and thinking. Uh, it's everything, right? You know, from, yeah. from, from talking to new dealers to talking to customers. And again, the customer feedback is invaluable to, you know, figuring out telematics, to the fun stuff, like talking to you, right? I, I love doing things like this. The, the more we can get, you know, kind of folks thinking around the, what we do, I think the better um, understanding. You know, we're, we're, we're fighting the fact there's no inventory and dealers can sell everything they have three times over, but I, I have to believe that really isn't going to be the case forever. Can you tell us anything about yourself that I wouldn't be able to learn on your LinkedIn profile? That, that's sort of a toughie. I really kind of live and breathe the automotive business. I mean, I read every publication that, that, that's out and try to see where the trends are. And I'm a, I'm a consummate tinkerer with, with, with gadgets and, and, and new ideas and things like that. I have a big black golden doodle that dominates most things. And the only reason why he's not in here right now is because I closed the door. Otherwise, he would come and say hi. And I have a dog like that, too. I mean, she was a COVID dog, and this dog, she doesn't leave my side. I think that they're a new breed, these work-from-home dogs. Well, John, it was really great to talk to you. It was wonderful to hear more about Drive It Away. Uh, super excited to see where this platform grows and how quickly it grows. Uh, thank you so much.